Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 62, The New Normal. I'm Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And I'm Kelly Schuster-Perez, and I'm a teacher who codes. So Kelly, it's interesting, after three years, I think we're really going to have to figure out a new way to introduce ourselves, because I feel like you're the coder who teaches also, and, and <laughs> you're just getting things done in the classroom these days. We, we keep saying that, I think, but I don't know, maybe we just go back and say we're generalists sounds boring. I know, <laughs> got to have some sort of spin. <laughs> yeah, I can say, I am the teacher who codes all the way up to functions and read-write files. <laughs> As you said, you're the best at teaching kids if-else statements and loops and all of those things. Like No one else gives a better explanation for those than you do. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so it's been a busy week. We had a presentation over the weekend. We've got students doing um, amazing things in the classroom. We're getting to the end of another quarter, so our students are really coming along with their excitement and enthusiasm and proficiency in coding. It's pretty cool to see. Now that we've got them trained up, we have to start it all over again for the next quarter. You know how it goes every nine <laughs> weeks. We say it every nine weeks of our podcast too. Here we are about to embark on super colders. I had a little monster today. I created a monster today in my sixth grade and I tweeted about that. We can say that later. <laughs> but yeah, it happens. Yeah, it's been pretty cool to see it. It happens every time without fail. Like every time students get into it, they just have a blast and they really get going. So it's nice to see that happening this week. Absolutely. Yeah. Today, we're going to be talking about all the things that have, have changed over the past year and how this situation that we're in now, the place that we're in right now is the new normal, that it's not going to go backwards. And we hope that it doesn't go backwards. So our topic today is all about those things that we that we love about teaching this way, the things that we hope don't ever come back, the things that we still miss a little bit, um, and we're going to go into details in the topic there. But I wanted to start with the win of the week, and I think Kelly, it's your turn to go first because I think you've got a good one this week. Absolutely, and I steal it from Sean. I have to say, one of our wins, or my win, your win, our win, is that we presented at Live Curious Go Beyond, and I guess that's where we are getting our topic from. We had a lot of inspiration talking to people around the globe um, from Monterey and we presented and that was, that's always a win to present, but we had an engaging presentation. We got to see uh, Will Richardson, who I love. I've been following him since I saw him in San Paulo in like 2000 and I don't know, 13. Amazing guy, great inspiration. I got to reconnect with John Micton, who taught me about EdTech way back when from PTC, Principal Training Center. And it was just a great time to see people and get to know. Yeah, I think it was really in inspirational. Like Our session was really interactive. We had a lot of great questions. People were really engaging with it, providing a lot of good feedback. Our Zoom chat was pretty lively with people sharing things that they were liking and wanting to do more of. And I think that was the spirit of the whole weekend that was pretty great to see was that these are people that are leaning into the future of where we're going with education and especially not just because of COVID or not despite COVID, but because it's been a disruption to the existing system. And within that disruption is a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And I just think that benefit of being able to talk to people face-to-face -face via Zoom, we were in Monterey in theory, recording is in Monterey, but it's great to just be able to speak to them. We got to go in breakout rooms. It's just... It gives a teacher this boost of energy when it's getting to the crunch time quarter and we're feeling a little low. So yeah, had a great high, great win. 
That's great. It's such a great win this week. Excellent. Okay, so for me, the win this week has been files in Python, and I don't know why I didn't think about this earlier, but one of the things I've always tried to figure out, like how to get the students to see what I love about coding. And one of the things I love about coding is taking myself out of the equation. So I write the code, but then I let the program do its thing, and it can do stuff that I could never do. So this could be things like it can answer emails at two o'clock in the morning while I'm not there, or it can take a bunch of data and, and transform it into something else, or it can recognize speech in other languages and translate it. So this idea of having code do things that I can't do is something that I've really tried to figure out a, the best way to do it. And so I came up with this lesson sequence that started with reading files from the file system and being able to save them. So we started with watching a, a video from YouTube before we started so that they could get someone else to explain it and they could go through it at their own pace and listen along. And then what we did was I took the Word file from my Mac, which is hidden somewhere on the file system. I'll post the, the link to it or the path to it in the show notes. But somewhere on a Mac computer, on every Mac computer, is a Word file of 235,886 words, at least in my version of it. And so this Word file, I took a segment of it and I gave them like 12 words from the middle of it. And I asked them to find what's the longest word in this Word file. And they could look at those 12 words and immediately spot the word. And then I showed them, okay, now load up or open up the word file that has 235,886 words in it, now what's the longest word in it? And they said, I don't know how, I couldn't figure that out. And some of them came up with some approximations or some heuristics that they could use to guess the longest word. Some of them tried Googling what's the longest word in the English language, and I said, no, that's great, but that's not the longest word in this file. And then what we did was we actually loaded the file into Python, and we just looped over it, and I showed them some really basic algorithms for keeping track of the longest word you've seen so far, and just looping through the entire list to pull out the the one that's the longest word. And then one student said, but wait, what if there's more than one word that's the longest word? And so we tried adding the longest words to a list, and we improved our algorithm. And I think by the end of it, they all got this idea that, wait a minute, this is now something bigger than myself. It's not something that I just typed in. I'm taking a huge amount of data and I'm doing something really interesting with it. Oh, and by the way, it's happening in a tenth of a second. So it's something that's way faster than I could do it. And that sort of process, I think, is really interesting to them. And I had a number of kids who were like, okay, that was really cool. Now I get what you're saying with being able to do bigger things. And so I was really excited to see that happen this week. Yeah, it's actually going to be my kind of fail and learn method. Because when you were doing that, at first, I was like, holy cow, what is he doing to me? He's going to make me learn something new and teach it. And I was getting scared. And I had that moment of imposter syndrome as well. It was but it was such a great lesson and to go in there and, and again I had to wait a couple times to Sean teach it taught it his his time and I had to process it and do it again to teach it I understood it but I didn't teach it and so that process of learning failure but it was such a great lesson and the kids got to see the why the why do we do this and I think watching that happen from watching you and then also watching my own students it was just, oh yeah, so that's cool. My my birthday app or my schedule app that we're making, now we can save it. 
And right. that for me was a solidification of, oh yeah, I forgot why we code. That is pretty cool. So it was kudos on that one. And what was great about it is then we went to using the JSON library, which for what a lot of the things that they're doing where they're having like a list of dictionaries or a dictionary of string values or something where there's more complex data that they're loading, they can save that to a JSON file, load it again, clear it out. There's a lot of different file operations that they can do with that that are really simple. And you don't have to know how JSON actually works for it. You just know that if I want to save something more complex, I can save it as JSON and load it as JSON and I get some basic data back. So it was really cool to see how quickly they embraced that. And the number of students today, it was really funny as they were going through and they're working on their programs, each of them is making an awesome list of awesome stuff, right? So that's their project now that they're working on is they're making this program that loads and saves data in JSON format to their file system. And some of them were like, but why? Like I started my program again and it has all of these other names in them. And I said, that's because you had it all saved in your file. They're like, oh, that's awesome. You know, <laughs> they just really got excited about it. And so the next idea that I think we're going to do is to look at some uh, specific packages on PyPI or look at the requests library in a basic way, because if they know how to load JSON data from disk, let's go get some JSON data from the web, and then they can start manipulating that in Python. And we can go from that idea of doing things that are bigger than what I can type in myself to getting in, getting the things that are more recent or up to date or real time or like fresh. So that idea of fresh data that's going into my code is a really powerful idea for them. And I think we'll do things like weather, stocks, stuff that's like really temporal and new, but there's some really cool ones out there like how many, like which astronauts are in space right now? And it'll tell you that. Yeah, it's really cool. And, and, we got lucky because it's the third quarter and we always have extra time in the third quarter and it's just a fun thing. So we get to play a little bit more with the third quarter students. I don't know why. I guess we just don't have a lot of interruptions this yeah. quarter. And so it'll be interesting. I'm sure I'll have another fail when I go to teach Jason. I have a couple lessons behind Sean in seventh grade. But what a fun time. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So let's dive into our topic. I don't think we have any other announcements or anything this week or any new news. There's. Go ahead with your new news. Go oh ahead. My, yeah, tomorrow. Ed, news from the education world. Go ahead. <laughs> tomorrow, Twilio Engage any, everywhere. They're having an event. I think today was your last day to probably too late to do it when we air it but they're having an event on tomorrow february 25th and i get to see ashton kutcher talk about investor and entrepreneur so that's pretty cool news I'll report on that and see what happens and jeff lawson the co-founder and ceo of twilio is going to be presenting i just think it's interesting to see how what's happening in the business world because again me being a new coder into this world i don't really connect as much to the new technology developments that are happening out there and it's nice to just see how this technology is on a large scale human problems how entrepreneurs are using it so that I can bring that back into the classroom I may not be able to teach it or I won't be teaching it to the sixth grade or seventh grade but we'll see what happens I think that's a really important thing to do though to be able to keep abreast of what's actually happening in the outside world and keep things relevant and fresh for students I was listening to the talk python podcast this week in the car on the way to school. And they had Dr. Becky, who's an astrophysicist at the University of Oxford in one of the colleges there. I forget exactly which one, but she works on examining different galaxies and it uses Python to do it. 
And it's really cool. She has something that she likes that she calls like an egg white galaxy that doesn't have a bulge in it like a normal galaxy. And it's really interesting stuff that she's working on. But she was talking about one of the major discoveries that happened last year. And I didn't even realize it was out there. But this idea of the Radcliffe wave is this giant 8,000 light year long uh dust cloud and gas cloud that's out there in the same arm of the Milky Way that we are, and it's only 400 light years away from us. But we've been looking through it for the entire time that humans have been looking up at the stars, but we didn't realize it was there until we could put the data into a 3D plot and analyze it using Python. Very cool. I thought that was very cool, and it just shows that, like, the the way that we are applying code and the way that we're applying these technologies and techniques and the way that human thinking is evolving about the way we look at the data around us has allowed us to start to see new things and things that were always there, but maybe we perceive it in different ways. And so having those new ideas or new topics to share with our students really seems to be helping them see, oh, that is a really useful thing that we could use. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so as part of our new normal, we're getting into that world. We're getting into that world where our students are making connections. They're not coming into the classroom where all they see is in the classroom on the walls around them. When they're in a virtual environment where they're dialing in on Zoom to the classroom, I say dialing in. It's like a rotary phone hooked up to Zoom. Maybe we should do that. Like you could rotary dial your Zoom meeting ID. I was just thinking of the you have mail kind of thing. There. <laughs> like the modem, yeah. Oh God. But here they are calling in on Zoom to the classroom. Who's to say that they can't? we can't have other people call in from around the world, like a Dr. Becky, and mm-hmm. talk about the world of astrophysics and Python? Who's to say we can't have our students go look at resources outside the classroom, outside what we can provide to them? And before, when we are in the classroom, I think the literal walls of our classroom kept us boxed into mm-hmm. this way of thinking that said everything that we have to learn is contained within these walls but this distributed hybrid distance model it forces us to think in new and different ways if all of my students aren't here with me then i have to provide things through the internet i have to provide resources i have to find resources that everyone can access not just the students in my room and i think it does improve the equity of the way that we teach because every student is getting more access to the information not just the students that are here in the room or the students that are on zoom yeah and it takes me back to this weekend when we were talking about our listening to will richardson with the silos in education and i think that's the beauty of computer science because if you're a computer science teacher you're not really in often i say often you're not in this silo of only my classroom because you're always looking at that new technology that's coming around or even as an ed tech you're looking at what's new on the market for software and you're able to see globally what's being used to benefit the world ar vr whatever it is even podcasts i don't know that every computer science teacher does that because i haven't met all of them Mm. but i do think that a really good teacher from what i've seen is someone who's always plugging themselves into new sources of information. It doesn't mean that they're always plugged in, but you're they're the people that have a professional learning network on Twitter. They're the people that have three or four podcasts that they'd love to listen to, and they're always looking for that next one. These are the people that are reading the magazines that just really get geeked out about the things that they teach. 
so that there's always something new and always something fresh because that novelty is really important for teaching. I don't, third year in, I think I would be bored if I was teaching the same thing I taught my first year. Yeah, absolutely. So I think just to take a step back for a moment about this, it, we've been reflecting a little bit about on the, about this topic of what is normal anymore after the last year of COVID and disrupted teaching. For us, the last day of normal school was March 13th, 2020. So Friday the 13th, which was ominous, right? But it was this Friday the 13th, and I remember we were all brought into a large auditorium, all the teachers, and we were all told that we were going home, this was at 4 p.m. on a Friday, that we were going home and that school was not reopening, hopefully for just a couple of weeks. So we were home for, we were gonna be home for a couple of weeks, and we were told this at 4 p.m. on a Friday, and we were also told that we would be holding classes and teaching remotely starting Monday morning at 8.10. And so it was a really big disruptive change. Now, we were far more ready at our school than many schools around the world, and I think we're lucky for that. We prepped a lot. We talked about it a lot. We talked about all the things that would need to happen in order to make this change occur. And I think as we went through the journey as a school and as teachers, we realized that the first two weeks that we thought we were going to be home and that hopefully we would come back we're really not going to happen that this was going to go on a lot longer than we initially thought. Now we had prepared for that too. And we had a lot of things in place, but as we've gone through the last year, what we've all recognized is that we can't go back to March 13th. There's no way back to that point where things were the way they were before. And one of the things that I've always thought about with industries and business and economics is the way that disruption shakes up everything in a business or an economy or an area where somebody who's disruptive changes everything and shakes loose a lot of the big players. What's interesting about this is that in education, everyone's the big player, right? There aren't really companies that come along and disrupt education, but a pandemic has come along and disrupted education. It has changed things. And we've all had to really look at our business of education, both the business of it and the just regular teaching, the education part of it, and say, how are we going to do this now with all these new changes that we have, all these new constraints and requirements and things that don't allow us to go back to the way we were on March 13th. As, soon as, as I was reflecting, you were talking about this, I was trying to remember where I was on March 13th and the work that we were doing before. We were, as some schools were, and then people in our position, we were planning for what we thought would be happening, what problems would exist. And this is what we do in education, day in and day out. We plan for... What if a student comes in and doesn't know X, Y, and Z? Or what if we have a fire? Or what if we have an intruder? We do all these pre-planning for these events, but we know what happens if we have a child that is behind or has a reading difference or has an organizational difference. We know because we have information on that. We've experienced it. We did not really know how a pandemic would play out. And so we planned for how we would continue to do our normal activities through a pandemic. 
And that was an interesting ride, I think, for a lot of teachers around the world. We were trying to still do the normal events in something that wasn't really normal. It was in the history of technology teaching ages, not pre the pandemic before when they shut down everything with the the, the lungs. Which one, the SARS or? Old times. Oh, like the Spanish flu? Yeah, something like yeah. that. People, obviously, education ceased or it happened at home or whatever. But in our history with technology and the abilities that we have, we've, we, don't, we never had that experience of education being a homeschool event. We were planning for that and trying to put our silos, our classrooms inside of a computer. It's a really interesting thing because what you see when you look at other industries is that any of the existing players who try to port their business model or their product, but then just do it in the new world, typically fail. An example of this, look at Eastman Kodak, right? Eastman Kodak had digital cameras back in the late 70s, early 80s. They had consumer digital cameras that they had come up with in their labs, and Kodak shelved it. They said, no, this is not our business. Like, our business should still be photos and film, and if people want to get photos and film onto their computer, they'll just use a scanner. Why would anyone want to have a lower-quality digital image when they can have a beautiful-quality print image or film image from a camera? And they're gone, basically, right? They're, they're, they've been relegated to nothing because they tried to take what they had always done and just like import or layer that on top of this new world that is disrupted for them. And so when we look at education, we don't want to be like the Kodaks of the world that take our existing education model and just let's do the same thing, but do it over Zoom instead. You can't do that. Yeah, and it's, been ta- it's, it's taken us a while to look into that and adjust we, we knew it, and I think with any educator out there, we knew that it might not work or it could not work or what I did before was really good. It has to work. We kept saying these things, like all these discrepancies. One teacher would say, hey, I could totally do this that way, or no, I can't do it that way. But we didn't go in and say, wait a minute, stop. Let's just think about what things are going to go wrong or what's going to look. Let's look for those loopholes of the things that are going to just change and make something better. And when I say we, this is not just our school. Globally. This is globally. This is everything that's happening across education around the world. And some are adapting better than others. Some are we're already better prepared for this than others. And I think I talked with the president of our school and She was saying, there's so many things that I hope we don't lose from this. So many things that we are doing better than we've ever done before that we're coming out on the other side of this stronger. So the idea with this new normal is what are the things that make the most sense? The things that make you stronger on the other side of it. When we emerge from the masks and the quarantines and the pure distance learning and plexiglass and all those things where we can have normal classrooms, what are the things that should be kept and saved and encouraged? What makes that new world stronger than the one we left back in March of 2020? Yeah. And at the conference, Live Curious, Will Richardson presented an article that was written by, and I'm going to totally chop this name up, Arundhati Roy. It was in the FT. We'll put a link. We can't put a link to the FT, but I'll put a link to the video where the pandemic is a portal. And I I thought it was 
a great summary of what what we're just talking about here, but in the article, it says, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. And this pandemic, this one is no different. It is a portal. It is a gateway between one world and the next. And I think as educators, we're really starting to see that we actually have a portal. Do we jump through it? And the end of that article says we can choose to walk through it, dragging, I love this, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and, and whatever, or we can walk through it lightly with little luggage ready to imagine another world. Imagine the educational world, the education system of we embrace this change, this new normal, this new way of teaching. Let's you know focus only on computer science right now. This new way of teaching computer science, these things that I've learned to love about COVID, the ability to share my screen or my other students to share their screens and show their errors on on the whiteboard and everybody have a, an error-looking contest or this ability for a student to be coding at the dentist's office while they're waiting to get their braces, this fact that they don't have to come to school sick and meet a certain attendance record and they can still attend school even though they might be driving off to go ski in (laughs) Vail or Beaver Creek. The fact that all these great things that have happened because of COVID. Right. And I think I love the analogy of the portal also. I think the key though to me is not, as you're right, we don't want to drag the rotting carcass of what it was before. I think that's a great visual, kind of gross, but a great visual. We don't want to drag all of that through, but we definitely want to loot the body before we go. So we want to take all the things that are great about all the things we've learned. We can't just throw it all away. We take the great parts, the stuff that's, wow, this is really important, or this is really valuable, and we bring it along with us. We don't know if on the other side we're actually going to use it, but we shouldn't just throw away everything. We should look at all these as individual pieces of a puzzle and figure out how they assemble themselves in new and interesting ways on the other side. For example, like there are things, and maybe we should do this as a top five list. Here are the five things that we love about the new way of teaching this year. Here are the five things that we're not sad at all to see go. You know, Let's do it. Let's do it, okay. <laughs> so number one, and in no particular order, my one of my favorite things about teaching in the new world is that I have students who don't miss as much. Like they can join from anywhere. And I have students who have dialed in from as far away as Alaska to be able to join the classroom and be a part of it. And it means that I have these really great individuals, these perspectives coming from all over the country. And my students are getting these great experiences by being able to travel a little bit. They don't like travel everywhere, but they go to different places. They dial in from wherever they are. They are able to attend and they don't miss because they have the sniffles or because they're not feeling great or whatever. They come in from Zoom wherever they are. And that means that they have that consistency of the experience all the way through. Yes. So my, one of mine is, since you took that one, um, (laughs) one of mine is I actually feel really connected to a lot of my online students because they enter Zoom sometimes earlier and the kids are, the kids at school are transitioning they're getting their stuff out. The kids on Zoom are already there. I can look at them and I like to have all these little conversations with them that 
normally the other kids are trying to rush, rush in to get their, they pack their bags, they close their bags, they bring their computers out, they have to settle in, they have to move around. So we lose a lot of time at that beginning of class. But my kids on Zoom, they're already sitting there. They're already ready. So I get to find out mom is doing this or this is my dog or yeah today I I made breakfast for my mother and I get to have these great little conversations that I think I forgot to do a lot as a teacher because I was so ready to get the kids started so for me it's that connection taking the time to connect with the people that sometimes feel disconnected from not being in school that's a really interesting point and I know you do a better job of that than I do it's One way to think about it is that when you're sitting at your screen and you have those few minutes of talking with people, the student may be physically located 20, 30, 2,000 miles away, but they're four feet away through the screen, right? The distance from your face to the camera and their camera to their face is probably about four feet. Oh, with one foot, I stare, I get in the screen. I'm like full (laughs) on. You're right there, ready to go. But it's, there's that in me, there's that intimacy of being face to face and being close to one another. And that's something that Zoom can do for us because you can't have all of your students that close to you in a regular classroom. So that's something that is available to us. All right. So my next one that I, I love, and I hope we don't lose is I love that our students have more focus time. Especially when they're Zooming, there's more time for them to focus on what they're doing. And because our classroom is less full, there's also more space for the students to focus. Fewer distractions, there's still some going on, but they have more time to focus on coding. And then the other thing that we did this year that I think is adding to this is we went to a block schedule. I, I think I stole Kelly's next no, one. No, well, that's okay. I you think just the, took two and one, but go yeah, ahead. I think it's the same thing, though. It's just that longer time to really dive in and focus and dig into what they're doing. Because what I always found was that switching time between classes ate into the core time when they could actually learn something or figure something out. So I'd rather have 78 minutes of time for them to dig in and really get into it, really sink their teeth in rather than 39 minutes where half of it is transition time. Yeah. So the other thing that I really, really love about what COVID forced me to do, it forced me to make screencasts and videos. And I did this at first for asynchronous teaching at the beginning. And I thought it was a great way to go over the concepts that I'm constantly teaching or the questions that I always know I'm going to have. But it was always a fear for me to make these videos. We, we get nervous. And I have my YouTube channel for my kids where I've gone over concepts of objects and methods. I've talked about here's how you make some functions and simple functions. And are they high quality that I want to promote on on our Teaching Python podcast? Probably not. And sometimes I was outside and there were like my kids screaming, but they were useful and it showed me that I can make great screencasts and actually I end up making them in two to three minutes and I was able to get better at them. So I think that was uh, something that I don't want to lose. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the, the last one that I'm going to add on this list for me is I really like the fact that we can do teacher meetings virtually now too. I think that's really helping a lot and I hope that we don't lose that because there was something about being in a large room together that didn't always lend itself to 
tackling what we wanted to or getting done what we needed to. And the part that made it better than what we had before was the breakout rooms in Zoom. So the ability for teachers to collaborate together, it made our meetings much more effective because instead of just disseminating information and your eyes glaze over for it, it became so much more interactive, right? It was like, this part isn't relevant to me, so I'm gonna check out for a second and think about something else or daydream like our students do into, no, I'm in a room with two other people and we're gonna figure this out. And the meetings that we've had with those breakout rooms have been far more interactive and purposeful in their approach than what we had when we were all just sitting in a room together. Yeah, and I will second that with the actual use of using breakout rooms and meetings with students. So I have two students that are clearly best friends, but they actually work really well together. When they're in class, they sit across from each other, across from the plexiglass, and they are very efficient. They get their work done. Yes, they may be chit-chatting about volleyball because it's one of the, the things that they like, but they're also making apps about volleyball and who to invite to their volleyball parties. So I'm able to put kids like that who I know can work into their own breakout room. They are talking about code, they're using code, they're encouraging um, each other. And just the ability to say, okay, here you are, you're partnering up, you're gonna go into this breakout room. Can't really do that as well because when you do that in a classroom, and everyone's in the classroom trying to work on a partner, it's really loud and it's very distracting. But being in a breakout room with another person is just, it's mind blowing because you feel like you're in this room alone. And then when you add the screen sharing onto that, where students can share screens with one another, they, oh, let me show you my code, here's my approach. That seems to really increase the effectiveness of it. So there's a lot of benefit there. All right, so let's... Oh, wait, wait, no, wait. wait I got okay, go one, one more. One we were going to make 10. All I right. thought we were making 10. We're almost right. at nine. Oh, go. <laughs> He's, no. Go ahead. Last thing, plexiglass. I love the plexiglass. I know you don't like the plexiglass, but I love writing on the plexiglass. I don't want it in front of the desks, but I want a wall <laughs> with plexiglass so we can have another writing service. I think it's good. That could be cool. Yeah, and yeah. then you can erase it. Like, you can see through it. It's not a white wall, but you can still write on it. Could be cool. Yeah, right. pull down plexiglass from the ceiling. Okay, that I'm struggling to understand <laughs> a little bit, but okay. Okay, so things that we do not miss about the way we used to teach. The way we used to teach. That's all the opposites. Yeah, maybe. There are things that I, I don't want to see brought back. Like, I don't want to see this idea that everybody has to be in the same room together. I We have figured this out now. Like, Let's turn this question into, and I love this question from Will Richardson, why do we do X. Oh, okay. I like, okay, let's do that. So why do we have to be in a room to learn together or whatever you said? Go ahead. We don't, we don't, right? That's what this, what taught us is that honestly learning can happen anywhere. And in fact, learning happens better often outside of a classroom than it does inside. We've seen that here. We're experimenting with outdoor learning stations because sometimes the ability to go sit outside and have fresh air and a nice place to sit stimulates your thought processes. Sometimes you want a dark room that just has a nice keyboard and a big screen and that's fine too. But that variety of learning experiences, places where you can go to learn, I think it also teaches our students that school isn't a place where they go, it's a state of mind that they enter into when they're learning. So if we can show them that school is something that they 
experience as a way to learn and not a building or not a room. Like they don't have to go to Mr. Tiber or Ms. Paredes's room to learn computer science. They can grab a book and go outside. They can be on the road somewhere and learn about it. They can listen to a podcast and learn more about coding or about how computers actually work. Yeah. And I was going to add on to that with a kind of what, another two, whatever. So why do we have to have school synchronously. I don't learn that way. You don't learn that way. Yes, I do like to go to MOOCs. Yes, I like to watch videos. Yes, I love hearing lectures. I love hearing someone do a presentation. And we do have that opportunity to talk to somebody. But sometimes I need to process that information by myself. I need to read a book. I need to watch a video on my own time. I need to write. I need to reflect. Those asynchronous learning opportunities or activities, why do they have to happen within 72 minutes of a classroom or 42 minutes of a classroom? Or why do I need a teacher to talk to me for 42 minutes of a classroom about the stuff that I can actually read online by a professional writer? Not saying that teachers aren't professional, but why not? I think that's very valid. Like, why do we have to learn everything live? It's a great question. Like we have a lot of things that should be done live or maybe that are better done live. I think discussions are better done live, right? Conversations, disagreements are better done live, right? But learning information, absorbing information, it's really tough. And it's hard for me, I think because I've now been out of the school setting so long, it's hard for me to go to a live training and learn about stuff, especially when it's not relevant, or I already know this part, or I don't see how I'm going to use it. So I, I had that moment, I, I was doing a live training the other day, and I realized this is what our students are experiencing. Here the, the person is speaking about something that may be relevant to some of the people in the classroom, but it was really hard for me to see how I was going to use it, because it wasn't really my responsibility, it wasn't something I was going to set up. So why am I sitting through this training listening to something that I'm not going to use in the future. And so it gave me that insight into our students and how they need more of that choice and the ability to find the information that they need. But then the other thing that made me realize too is they need to build the skills to learn how to dig into something deeply on their own, Mm -hmm. to be able to really learn it. And we're seeing that as I'm going through the projects. They're having to learn how do I actually learn this information? How do I read more? And there's a lot of students who like just bail out. They're like, hit the ripcord. Like I'm out of here because I had to read more than four sentences. Yeah, you're going to have to, right? Or you're going to have to find a video. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about this and we didn't get to experience this. And this isn't something that has happened during the the pandemic. But I, I wish it could happen eventually, but why do we have to have sixth graders in a class together in computer science or in a class together in math? Why do we have to have grade levels? And I know it's easier for us as educators, but some of my sixth graders can outcode some of your eighth graders. And it's not because maybe it's not because the curriculum's different. Everyone it has could, different paces. Different paces. They might have not had sixth and seventh grade coding, or they might not have put in the effective effort in sixth or grade or seventh grade a lot of reasons but i have kids that are passionate in sixth grade that i've said this before on our podcast that will outcode me and by the time they're in eighth grade they're that good so why do they have to do it and we as computer science teachers 
here, we have made it so that we allow them to extend their learning. So they're not doing necessarily the sixth grade curriculum. If they're past the sixth grade curriculum, we get it. But why do they still have to sit in and listen? Thankfully, with the COVID, we were able to give them this asynchronous activity. Oh, you want to learn Python Arcade? Here you go. While I'm teaching about lists, go make some sprites and go make your own list making this game. Think about it. Why do we have grade level? I think it's a I think it's a great question for certain subjects maybe you don't need it at all. And maybe that's something that I think is the answer for us here is I think that's a big change, right? In the way that we structure and think about our grade levels and courses and the way that students progress, there's definitely logistical challenges with that. And certainly with everything that we've done over the last year, that probably is a little too much to tackle, right? <laughs> I mean, there's differentiation. Right. I know everyone, some some educators are sitting out there screaming, that's why we differentiate. Sure. Yeah, we do. Right. And sometimes in, in our curriculum, we differentiate a lot. But I think the benefit is that when you are able to help students come together into groups that are roughly aligned, it doesn't have to be like, oh, here's honors coding or whatever. But if you can group your students together, they can go further together as a group of kids who get it and they're all in the same area rather than having them all spread out there's definitely some you know downsides to that also but there's a lot of ways that we could rethink the way that we do this that don't necessarily mean like blowing apart our our entire class and grade level structure that could give those differentiation opportunities to students but in a way that's maybe more organic right or more natural all right, so let's see here. Other questions? Why do we have to? I have a lot, but I think I might be going too too meta and too wishful. <laughs> All right, how what? about this then? What's one thing that you can't wait to get back into your classroom that you can't do right now? Or in virtual classroom or physical? This is really hard because I'm one of those teachers that I really, <laughs> I'm really having a great time with this. I think what, great. Put away the mask, put away, I'm, I'm thinking all positive, putting away the mask, putting away all this horribleness of not being able to see my parents, blah, blah, blah. I'm like just thinking about school only. Right. In, in a silo, sorry. What is something I want to get back to? I want to get back to being able to use more manipulatives. I think it's been a hard move for us and me having to wipe down cables or microbits. Kids get the microbits for nine weeks, so I only have to wipe it down at the end of nine weeks. Sometimes I don't get them back. But things like that, being able to pull out the Legos and the robotics and just say, if a kid says, oh, I wish I could play with Legos, and I could say, oh, here you are. I miss that. I do. You know what I miss? I miss watching the kids side by side at a whiteboard table or on a whiteboard wall, drawing something together, figuring something out together visually in that diagram. And the distancing aspect of that has really been making it really hard to do that. And I know that, yes, we can whiteboard on Zoom, and we do, but there's something about that tangible, tactile I have a marker in my hand, I'm sketching it out, I'm drawing it out, I'm thinking about how it works, that's really powerful, and I haven't been able to replicate that yet digitally. I think we we just made a new word, tangical. I like that. Tangical. I was going to edit that out. Don't edit it out. Tangical. We're going to write an article about it. Here's the tangical, the tangible, tactical way of teaching computer (laughs) science. (laughs) No, I agree. You heard it here, folks. Copyrighted (laughs) teaching Python. Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking about, I was looking at these pictures when we were trying to put together our presentation, and there was that picture. We have a huge table that sits. Actually, you're sitting at it right now. I'm sitting at it right now, but it's it's split up with four, and I think it sits eight. 
Yeah, it's a it seats eight. You eight. can have three on each side and one on the ends. And I was looking at the pictures, and last year the kids you would think that the kids wouldn't want to be next to the teachers, but I, the sixth graders like to be like right next to you, like literally if they could, and it was not weird, they would be like on top of you side by side. And I would have seven of the other students surrounded me and fight for this table, and we would sit there and code together. And yeah, I do miss that that ability to just to be with the kids. I walk around. I don't walk around that much. I feel like I'm sitting down a lot in front of my computer with the Zoom kid. Yeah, I wish I could have that back sitting side by side coding and not having to sit down all the time. And and at the same time in that new normal, like how do you make it feel like the Zoom kids are part of it? And as we go further, as there's more things that come along in terms of technology tools and capabilities, hopefully it'll be like that Radcliffe wave where we have because we have the new technology we can see things that we've never seen before, things that were right in front of us. That's the goal, is this is an opportunity for us to rethink the way that we do education because we have this opportunity. Like It's a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-many-lifetimes opportunity to rethink how education works. And I know that there are people out there like Will Richardson and others who have been talking about all these things that could be better with education. This could be better with education. This could be better with education. And now we actually have a shot to do that because in the midst of disruption is when the biggest opportunities emerge to make change because it's already broken. So who says you have to put it back together the way it was? Yeah, as, as we're reflecting this and thinking about these questions from the conference that we went to and our presentation, this new normal that should be the hashtag. Thank you, Roy, Will Richardson, whoever coined this, but this new normal after the pandemic, this portal, what can we do or what can we do as educators around the world to help push for this this change to make education better? Yeah, and what's going to be interesting about it, I think the way that we'll really know that we've made it there is when the new normal just becomes education. It's not the new normal anymore. It's just, this is the way we teach. This is the way we learn. This is the way we educate. It's no longer the new normal. It's just, this is normal. And that's gonna be a big change for us to make. And I think it'll take some time to get there, but I know that it's going to happen. I know, like I've seen it on Twitter, the number of you out there that are pushing the boundaries, who are rebuilding the world of education through this disruption and emerging stronger on the other side, it's happening. And it's a really exciting thing to be part of. I didn't actually think I would be part of it when I started teaching three years ago, but here we are. If you have thoughts about this, if you have things you want to share, ideas, if you think we're totally full of it and, you have, <laughs> and you're like, I disagree completely on whatever it is, share your thoughts with us. Absolutely. And we're going to put a link of our presentation. We had a presentation on what kids really learn from learning how to code. I love this stuff. Sean's really embraced it as well as becoming an expert teacher. It, the learning theories, the things that we use in the computer science classroom, it takes us back into this normal of what is learning, making that be the focus. So if we put everything else aside, what is learning and how do you know students are learning? I think that you can only get good things as long as you're focusing on that. So we'll put a link to that. We'll also put a link to that video, The Pandemic is a Portal, which is a really inspiring video just to watch that in section. And what else are we going to put up there? Um, we'll try to find the link to uh, Will Richardson's and Homa to Wagner's Big Question Institute, the nine big questions schools must answer. 
I think that's a great, that's where we were getting our ideas from. And yeah, please send us a tweet and show us our talk about your opinions or questions or whatever. Yep. So you can reach out to us through our website at teachingpython.fm. We're on Twitter at teachingpython. Kelly is at Kelly Perret on Twitter. I'm at SM Tiber on Twitter. Now let's see here. What else am I on these days? I think I'm on Steam a lot these days. I've been playing more games than usual lately, so you can probably find me there too. There's a new game out called Valheim, which reminds me of all the best things of Minecraft back in the early days where everyone's just excited about it and going. And do not play it if you want to enjoy free time ever again. (laughs) And I'm on LinkedIn, and I've been posting a a few blogs, so check out our blogs on Teaching Python as well. Yep, that sounds good. And we are looking into some new channels to reach out to you. We're looking at potentially doing some live video streams. I want to expand our Patreon tiers. So for those of you who are supporting us on Patreon, thank you so much. I'd like to add some new levels of Patreon support with some perks for our listeners. Like maybe a lesson plan on sixth graders or for sixth graders or the lesson plans that we use. We might be able to give you some perks or some ideas. Or we could do a Zoom and collaborate on a lesson plan. You want to Zoom with us and help? we, we will help give you advice on or have fun talking to you either or you (laughs) so if you have ideas for what would look like great things for the next iteration of teaching python definitely share that with us as well and we're looking forward to hearing from you so for teaching python this is sean and this is kelly signing off